few weeks ago, uh, we had another guest preacher named Brian McCann from Training Leaders International. And during one point of the sermon, he asked, he asked us to picture a scenario. And I want to revisit the scenario he asked us to picture. Full disclosure is not a really pleasant scenario, so just bear with me. Now, imagine this. Imagine it's a pretty Sunday morning like it is today, but in the middle of our service, a mob formed outside of our building, protesting what's going on in this church, specifically protesting me, uh, the person who most regularly preaches here. Now imagine part of this mob, there were church leaders and pastors from this area that you know and respected, and that all of them demanded you to hand me over to them and you got News Channel 5 and Foxing helicopter overhead, and you have no choice, they take me away, and you don't know what's going to happen. Could you imagine that? It, it seems so far-fetched, doesn't it? But this is pretty much what happens to the Apostle Paul when he showed up to the Greek city of Thessalonica. And it happened in more cities besides that one, amazing enough. Now imagine, put yourself in the shoes of the Thessalonians. You're a brand new Christian. Not only are you a brand new Christian, you've just completely uprooted your life, left behind the idols you used to worship, and now you're worshiping this king called Jesus. And the person who you listen to about the arrival of this king is now branded a heretic by everybody in town. And more than that, he is banished from town and is told never to come back. If that's not all, you are uh, the same people who did this to the Apostle Paul now begin to scrutinize and pressure you. And still, if that's not all, the other Christians around you are unexpectedly dying. So how many of you have your pastor is gone? There's new pressure on you? There's people around you who are dying? How do you think you would feel? You, you can understand how you might feel at least confused. You can understand how you might at least feel some doubt. You probably could understand how you could even feel devastated. Given all that's just happened to you, you might start to wonder, is the gospel that I believed really true and reliable? Has God actually worked in it? Because it sure doesn't seem like it with all that's happening. So here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to discouraged and doubting Christians. And he assures them of God's love for them. He assures them of God's work in them. And he does this first by thanking God for how God caused them to receive the gospel. That's chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, Paul still wants to reassure these doubting and discouraged Christians. He tells them, when we came to proclaim the gospel to you, it wasn't for nothing. Guys, it wasn't a waste of time. You can trust me. He tells them that the gospel ministry they received is something that can only come from God. There's no way it could have come from just people. He tells them that they can trust the gospel message, not just because of its content, although its content is true and reliable. They can trust the gospel message also because of the ministry that God produces through it ministry that God produces through it, what accompanies the gospel, the care and love that accompanies the message of the gospel. That's another reason they can trust it. 
This principle alone, just from the outset, reminds us as a church who prizes sound doctrine, who prizes precise gospel preaching, it's a good reminder for us that sound gospel doctrine in a church should create sound gospel culture in a church. Right beliefs should produce right behavior and care. It's another reason why the gospel is trustworthy. If you haven't turned on there yet, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2, <coughs> verses 1 to 12. Follow along as I read. For you yourselves, brothers, know that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, and as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were they pretexts for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses of God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. So what kind of ministry does the God of the gospel create? God creates an effective ministry that is freed from self, that serves like Christ. An effective ministry that is freed from self, serves like Christ. This is another way that God shows off this gospel message is reliable. The people who preach it are free from their worst tendencies so that they can serve like the one they proclaim, so that they can serve like Jesus. So our time together this morning, I want to go through this passage, and I want to see how God, how God shows off the power of the gospel by freeing us from four of our worst tendencies. He frees us from these so that we will serve more like Jesus. So Paul kicks it off. Verse 1, he tells them, guys, it wasn't a waste of time for me to proclaim the gospel to you. You can trust this message you believe because it creates a ministry that can come only from God. The first evidence of this is in verse 2. Through the gospel, God frees us from panic. Through the gospel, God frees us from panic. So circle back to verse 2 again, follow along as I read. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. These are more general details. We shouldn't skim over this. We should instead try to feel the situation Paul is at least briefly describing. And we can do this because we have background to this verse. The book of Acts, chapter 16 and chapter 17, give us this background. So when Paul says that they suffered and were shamefully treated at Philippi, there are more details than just that. What was their suffering? Well, their suffering kicked off when a demon-possessed slave girl 
following, following them around and harassing them. I don't know if a demon-possessed person is ever following you around, but I can't imagine it's pleasant. And it didn't just happen for a day, it happened for days. So through Jesus, Paul cast this demon out of this girl, and she's set free. But the people who owned this girl weren't happy. Apparently they lost out on some labor and some money. So they grabbed Paul and his friend Silas, they dragged them to the marketplace where the entire city has come together, and even the rulers of the city preside in judgment, and they decide we are going to strip Paul and Silas naked and beat them with rods like baseball bats. And then they throw them into prison on top of all that, which is where Paul and Silas so famously pray and sing hymns to the God hears their prayers, he sends an earthquake, and they're freed. And on top of that, what's even better is that the official Roman court clears Paul and Silas of any charges. So if you were in Paul and Silas' shoes, what would you do next after all that has just happened? That's been a really long day. <laughs> if I were them, I mean, I might lay low for a little while and might warrant some kind of break. If I were them, I would definitely hesitate about taking that kind of risk ever again. But that's not what Paul and Silas did. They kept going to the next towns, and soon they went to the city of Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they proclaimed the same gospel, and they really got the same results as they got in Philadelphia. They had boldness. Have you been a Christian for some time, and you've likely heard stories of boldness like this? If you've been a Christian of some times, you probably have heard stories of boldness from Christians today. I recently spoke to one missionary. Uh, he is a pastor in Niger. Uh, he told me about a man named Ibrahim. Ibrahim is a former Muslim in Niger, but uh, God saved Ibrahim, brought him to faith in Christ. But for a while, Ibrahim was the only Christian in his family. And more than that, Ibrahim was one of just very few Christians in his entire village. And so it was a tough few years, but through his persistent witness, God saved Ibrahim's wife as well, and she came to faith in Christ. Soon after that tragedy struck, struck their family, Ibrahim and his wife, they, they lost their home, they lost their farm. Then soon after that, Ibrahim's wife got sick and died. And so in response to this, the entire village knew what was happening. They gathered around Ibrahim and they began to talk to him. They tell Ibrahim, said, this is happening to you because Allah is cursing you because you became a Christian. And so at this moment, the, the very few Christians in the village who had previously been pretty shy about making their loyalty to Jesus know, they step forward among this crowd and stand next to Ibrahim. They tell Ibrahim, the crowd, where the crowd refused to help bury Ibrahim's wife, the highest form of shame in the culture. They tell Ibrahim, we are with you, we will, we will not bury her. A huge amount of boldness. So stories like that, stories like Paul and Silas in Philippi, Thessalonica, or Ibrahim and the Christians in Niger, these stories inspire us. But if you're like me, these stories also convict you. These stories might also leave you feeling a little down. Because if you're anything like me, you hear stories like that and you say, I could never do that. But friend, let me tell you something, you're probably right. <laughs> but here's the thing, I bet Paul and Silas and Ibrahim and the other Christians in Niger, 
I bet they would say the same thing as us. They would think ahead of the time, well, we could never do something like that. And that's sort of the point. Because look at the source of Paul's boldness in verse 2. They had boldness in our God, not in themselves. Paul didn't face the conflict in Thessalonica and Philippi and say, I'm just going to remember my training and remember how skilled I am, and I'm just going to brave it and say, I can do it. No, he had boldness in our God. And you probably know this, Christian, but here's a reminder that you might need to have. The same God who is for Paul is the God who is for you. The same God who loves Paul and gave his son to make Paul his own loves you gave up his son to make you his own. The same Jesus who bore all of Paul's judgments for his sin, the same Jesus who conquered death, the same Jesus who defeated Satan, is the Jesus who lives forever for you. The same Holy Spirit who dwelt in Paul is the same Spirit, believer in Jesus, who dwells in you. So I don't know if you know this already, but if you don't feel very bold, well, my friend, you have all the resources you already need to be bold. You have the resources already. So just remember the gospel. In the gospel, God frees us from relying on ourselves. Our boldness is like our salvation. Our salvation is in God, not us. So our boldness is in God, not us. But maybe you're still kind of feeling like we're missing something. It's feeling like there's some level of disconnect. So what we're saying is that when we are bold enough to proclaim the gospel, even when it's at some level of risk to us, it verifies that the gospel is reliable. Because it says we're willing to do this even when we have skin in the game. But for a lot of American Christians, and I'm probably included among them, I see more panic than I see boldness. I see more panic I see boldness. If you think about what is the content that keeps us scrolling? Content that keeps us watching. What's the content that keeps us voting? It's the content that keeps us panicking. Panicking about our loss of influence. Panicking about our loss of power. Panicking about our loss of comfort. But you know what? Maybe God is up to something. Maybe, just maybe, God will display the power of the gospel through us by, by allowing us to experience suffering, shame, and conflict. Maybe we don't know the resource we already have for boldness because we run from situations that require us to be bold. Kind of like Jonah going to Nineveh, right? He just ran away. So maybe God will show off the power of the gospel by just forcing us in the deep end and telling us you've got to swim and rely on you. <laughs> Friends, if you're nervous for that day, you don't have to be. Because when that day comes, God will keep his promise that his mercies are new every morning. And God will give us mercy for that day. But until then, let me suggest something. Let me suggest that you prepare for swimming in the deep end by being willing to swim in the shallow end more often. Maybe the deep end is so intimidating to us because we're not even willing to swim in the shallow end of proclaiming the gospel, not just in the midst of conflict, but hardly willing to proclaim the gospel in the midst of awkwardness or in the midst of soft rejection or uncomfortability. Swim in the shallow end, friends. Maybe that one will make the deep end less. 
So, the Thessalonians can rest that the gospel they believe is trustworthy, it's reliable. It's not just because of the content of the message, but the ministry that accompanies the message. Through the gospel, God frees us from our worst tendencies in order so that we can minister more like Jesus. So God frees us from panic, number two. God frees us from pursuing the praise of people. He frees us from pursuing the praise of people. Look with me at verses three and four. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So in these verses, we see Paul clarifies his goal in proclaiming the gospel. He clarifies it through a contrast. You see that? Not this, but that. Negative, positive. His goal comes at the very end of verse 4. His goal is not to please man. His goal is to please God. Paul sort of works his way up to that point. He works his way up by showing that the right goal springs from the right source. The right goal springs from the right source. So he has the goal to please God because he knows the message's, the message's source is God. The message that, Paul's, that Paul proclaims, it's not Paul's own making. The message that Paul proclaims, it's not Paul's own wisdom. The message that Paul proclaims is not his own discovered life hack tips. The message that Paul proclaims is the gospel of God. God has entrusted him with it. God holds him accountable to proclaim it. The right goal springs from the right source. It is a message that comes from God, and it is a message that is about God. It's about God. Amazing. The message about God that sinners now have approval from God. This is amazing how this works. By looking at Jesus in their place, God justifies ungodly people. So that's why Paul writes to the Corinthians, another church, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul tells them, guys, it's a dead end to secure approval from other people. He tells them, guys, it's a dead end even to try to secure approval of yourself. You're too biased. You can't do that. You know whose approval matters the most? Who else? It's the Lord. The Lord acquits each one of us, approves of us, by looking at his son in our place. His death is perfect life. So the goal to please God springs from the right source. The source of a message that is from God and a message that is about God. And Paul shows what this goal is, this goal to please God. He works up to it backwards still in verse 3. He shows his goal to please God by showing what his strategy isn't. What his strategy isn't. You see, if Paul's goal was to just get people to praise him, then Paul could be okay with some error. If Paul just wanted people to praise him, then maybe Paul could fudge on the less savory details of the gospel. If Paul's goal was just to secure people's praise, maybe he could vent to the current cultural tendencies of the day. Paul's goal is just to get people to praise him. Maybe he could say that Jesus is just the latest and greatest, not that Jesus is the one and only. But Paul's goal is just to get people to praise him. Then he could employ the strategy of impurity. Verse 3, you could imagine how this might go. He might get more followers by showing people, hey guys, I live just like you live. I'm non-threatening. You don't have to 
Paul's goal was just to get people to praise him. He can employ the strategy of deception. He can tone down the substance of the message and play up working on people's emotions and working people into a frenzy and manipulating them. But that's, his goal is not to give people's praise. And so that shapes the strategies he uses. So here's some rubber against the road, trying to bring this to us, okay? Brothers and sisters, if you're like me, you, you, and this is a good desire, you desire our church to grow. You desire people to continue to come here. You want to see more people here. And, but I think 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, are a good guard about us thinking like that. A good guard for that desire. So you and I might not think our ministry matters until a certain number of people approve. My friend, whose approval matters the most is the Lord's, the Lord's alone. His approval secure in Jesus. And I get it, Paul in other places is clear. He doesn't want to put any unnecessary obstacle between people and Jesus. He doesn't want to do things that deliberately keep people away. But we shouldn't either. But the instruction for us is that if our first goal is to fill the seats, then we'll really be okay with using any strategy to meet that goal. If our first goal is to fill the seats, the strategies we use will likely be from the world and not from the Lord. Instead, our first goal should be to please God. That is our first goal. And friends, I'll be honest, that might not draw the most praise from people, but it actually will be the best thing we can do for people in the long run. In fact, that's a lot like Jesus, if you Jesus' first goal was not to please people, but to please God. We, we think about his ministry. Maybe we don't talk about this as often as we should. Jesus was honest about the cost of following him. Jesus did not tell people, you can live your best life now. Jesus told people, take up your cross. Follow me. Jesus didn't do whatever he could to amass really big crowds. In fact, Jesus often did what he could to fit out big crowds. <laughs> and we think about it, if Jesus' goal was to please people, then Jesus would have never went to the cross. The cross wasn't the way that drew the most praise from people, but it was the way that pleased God. And as it turns out, it was the way that was best for people in the long run. Friends, let's follow Jesus' steps. It's an encouragement. We do not have to bend the gospel. We do not have to wrap it in fancy packaging. We do not have to have the praise of people. God has freed us from having to have it. Friends, God shows off that his gospel is reliable when his people still preach it, even when it's not popular, even when no one receives it. I think about it from our fellowship together. Doesn't it show off that the gospel is precious and powerful? When we don't have bells and whistles, yet people still sing loud. When the screen gets messed up and people don't care, <laughs> people sing loud because they know who they're singing to. Does it show off the preciousness of the gospel? Does it show off the preciousness of the gospel when on Wednesday nights, there are some nights when there are five people here, but they still meaningfully pray together? When the crowd isn't impressive, but people still love each other? Friends, doesn't that show off that this gospel is true, reliable, and precious? God has freed us from having to have through the gospel, God frees us, number three, from having to have the pleasures of the world. 
having to have the pleasures of the world. This is similar to the last point. Paul clarifies another one of his motivations or another one of his goals in proclaiming the gospel. He tells the Thessalonians, like, I don't need to get praise from you, and neither do I need to get money from you. My goal is to care for you. Let's start with the negative side of that, verses 5 and 6. What Paul's goal is not. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, but we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul shows up at Thessalonica, and this is what he could have done. He could have smooth-talked them. He could have showed up at Thessalonica in order to fleece the sheep, not to feed the sheep. You can imagine how this might have gone. He could have showed up at Thessalonica like an infomercial guy. Because I said, Thessalonians, it's good to see you. I've heard so much about you. You guys have done so well in your journey with God thus far. But I want you guys to take the next step. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but as the Apostle Paul, I have spoken and seen Jesus face to face. Now, I want to share with you the secrets of Jesus' teaching. So I'm offering you, so that you can take the next journey in your faith, I'm offering you for a limited time only, a six-session <laughs> course to share all the secrets of Jesus' teaching. And it can be yours for eight easy payments of $59.95. <laughs> now, if you add to the next 15 minutes, I'll throw in for a limited time only, with no additional cost to you, one hem of my garments. <laughs> now, all joking aside, Paul says he could have legitimately made demands as an apostle. This means the Thessalonians could have supported Paul as a pastor and as a missionary. Paul could have received income in order to give himself entirely to the ministry of the word. In fact, Paul operates like that in a lot of other cities as he's a missionary. But Paul's flexible. Paul is able to say no to money. That would seem really rare in today's day and age. What's, what makes Paul be able to be flexible? What makes him able to say no to money? It must be because Paul loves something more. If You see, if Paul loved money the most, then Paul would always have to have it. If Paul loved money the most, he would only be a preacher to line his own pockets. If Paul loved money the most, his ministry wouldn't be a platform for what he could give. His ministry would be a platform for what he could give. But like any Christian, Paul has discovered the treasure that does not rust. He's discovered the treasure that cannot be stolen, the treasure that won't be left behind when he dies. That God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, has brought Paul back to himself through the dying and rising work of his son. He has the treasure that he is God's child through Christ forever. And so quite simply, Paul operates under this question, how can the pleasures of earth ever measure up to the pleasures of heaven? Paul doesn't have to gain everything he can on earth because he has already gained everything in heaven. Every spiritual blessing secure in Christ. So if Paul can protect the gospel's reputation by not taking a salary, all right, I'll do it. God has freed him from having to have the pleasures of the world. Positively, verses 7 to 8, he's freed him for caring like Christ. Follow along in verses 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very real to us. When you're free from having to get everything you can, you can start to generously give away what you see. Paul uses the analogy of a nursing mother. Nursing a baby is not a glamorous job. Ladies, I'm sure you can get a hearty amen to that. <laughs> but what a sweet picture of somebody who is not getting, but giving. A mom will do anything to help her baby get what she needs. And for as hard of work as this giving is, a mom will do it with affection. So since Paul doesn't have to worry about what he needs to get, he can start to care about what he can give. His relationships with others no longer has to be cold and professional. His love and care no longer has to be quid pro quo or timid. It can be sincere and affectionate. This sounds a lot like Jesus again, doesn't it? Jesus is the good shepherd who came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to get, but to give. Jesus was not just ready to give his life for people. Jesus actually did give his life for his people. And having received him, we say with Paul in Romans 8, 32, if God gave up his son for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Through the gift of his son, God gives us the antidote to greed, the antidote to having to have the pleasures of the as the antidote to greed is gratitude. Gratitude. Christians are no longer greedy for what they don't have. That's because we're too grateful for what we already do have in Christ. Friends, when we are grateful and not greedy, God shows off the preciousness and power of the gospel. When we are grateful and not greedy, we will care for people instead of use people for our own gain. When we are grateful, not greedy. We will be content with not having every modern comfort, modern convenience, and modern entertainment. When we are grateful and not greedy, we will be content with being ordinary and unknown. We don't need to be famous. We don't need to have a ton of Twitter followers. We are freed from that and freed to love the people who God has put right in front of us. When we are grateful, and not greedy, will that not stand out in our very materialistic, shallow, and greedy world when we are grateful and not greedy because of the gospel that God has done for us through it? So through the gospel, God has freed us from panic. He's freed us from having to have the praise of others. He's freed us from having to have the pleasures of the world. And lastly, through the gospel, God has freed us from performance. Look with me again in verses 9 to 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, he exhorted each, each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You guys know what a hypocrite is? If you think of somebody besides yourself, I got one. I'm, uh, I'm kidding. 
Most of us define a hypocrite, we went over this before, but most of us define a hypocrite as somebody who acts differently than what they claim to believe. Somebody who doesn't live up to the standard that he holds from other people. Both of those are good descriptions. But originally, uh, the word hypocrite was for an actor who wore a mask. An actor who wore a mask. So how it works is they don a mask, they put on a show, all in order to make themselves look good to other people. That is a hypocrite. Hypocrites perform. Think of Jesus' warning from Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So here's like Paul's clarifying. The good news about Jesus does not give us a new religious mask to wear. The good news about Jesus does not give us a new script for us to perform on stage. The good news about Jesus transforms us from the inside out, not just a mask. When Paul proclaimed the gospel, it wasn't a performance. It was the overflow of his new heart that was freed from himself and captivated by Jesus. And this heart of Paul displays itself more than when Paul is on the platform, but when Paul is at work. More than when Paul is on stage, but when Paul interacts with other people. More than when Paul is preaching, but when Paul teaches individuals one-on-one. The overflow of his new heart is on display all the time. He's not just performing. He has a new heart. And Paul says, like, I'm like a dad. I want to guide you in the right direction. I want to see God show off the power of the gospel through you. Friends, God validates the power of the gospel when his people do more than just perform church. God validates the power of the gospel when his people do more than just put on a smiling face and polite manners at church and are pretty nasty people otherwise. God validates the power of the gospel when his people treasure him from their hearts. All that he's done for them. God shows off the power of of the gospel when his people live to honor him the one who has so mercifully saved them. Live to honor him, the one who is bringing them home to himself forever. God shows off the power of the gospel when his people do better than just perform. Friends, can you think how much this would stand out in today's world? Isn't so much of our lives just performance? Isn't every person who comes on the cable news just performing? Isn't every person online and so much of social media just performative? You're putting a perception for people to see. How much would sincerity and integrity stand out in our world today? New hearts shaped from the gospel, not just a new mask to wear. But we began our time talking about me, the pastor, getting mocked. (laughs) Paul began this passage talking about himself. But he ends this passage talking about the Thessalonians. You see, the Thessalonians were meant to imitate Paul. And Paul was imitating Jesus. So my friend, if you aren't a Christian, first off, thank you for making it to this point. It's great to have you here. If you aren't a Christian, I just humbly invite you. Would you hang around for a while? Hang around this group of people. It's our humble prayer. 
we will see glimmers of goodness in us. It's our humble prayer that the glimmers of goodness you see in us will point you to the fullness of goodness that we see in Jesus. Because in all the ministry that we're describing that we want to have, we see that Jesus, going back to the first point, Jesus is the one who is supremely bold. Jesus is the one who always had the goal to honor and please God. Jesus never sought uh, for himself. Jesus is the one who cared so much for other people that he died for them. Think about this. Jesus never put on a mask. Jesus was, even at the level of his heart, holy and blameless and righteous. Friends, the kind of ministry that we're praying that God creates in us to show the power of the gospel is the kind of ministry that we first see in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we see what you have done for us through the good news of your Son, how you have freed us, God, we confess that we give ourselves to our former master. 